This is Unfilter, episode 339 for November 25th, 2020. Let's take a step back here and see what we're talking about. We are witnessing the mad king in the final days of his reign, willing to scorch the earth of his country and bring down the whole system to undermine our whole democracy, strip it of its legitimacy, poison the confidence of our people and our institutions and the Constitution for Donald Trump's own petulant, selfish, rabid ends. Hello, friends, and welcome into the People's History Podcast. And in full transparency, I will disclose to you that I am recording this one a little early. Got to get ready for the turkey day. And uh, the time I'd normally record the show is when I'm going to put the brine together and get the bird in the bath. So I wanted to record this early. And I'm letting you know, because if something crazy happens and uh, you expect to hear it in this here episode, it's because I did it a little early this week. But I do have a good batch of stories, lots to get into, plenty of things that have happened since we got together last time. But why don't we start with the COVID? We have an update on numbers and, of course, new likely target ship dates for the vaccine. Welcome back. Hospitalizations from the coronavirus reached a new high yesterday, shattering shattering a previous record set only a day before. Over 88,000 people are currently hospitalized from COVID-19, according to the COVID tracking project. The U.S. yesterday also reported its highest daily death toll in six months with nearly 2,100 fatalities. Meanwhile, we are learning that a COVID vaccine may be coming sooner than expected. According to the New York Times, around mid-December, 6.4 million doses of Pfizer's COVID vaccine will be shipped out across the U.S. in an initial push after it receives an expected emergency authorization, officials said on a call with reporters on Tuesday. The first doses of the vaccine are expected to go to healthcare workers and potentially a few other vulnerable groups. The vaccine will be allocated to all 50 states and eight territories, as well as six major metropolitan areas. The quantities will be based on how many adults live in each each jurisdiction. After the initial doses, state governors and local leaders will decide where the shipments go. There you go. So it's going to be essentially down to your local authorities. So if you've really been liking the way they've been handling the Rona so far, you probably will like the way they've handled the vaccine. And the opposite is also going to be true. But as today is November 25th, 2020, Thanksgiving here in the States is tomorrow. And it's what everyone is talking about. And it's a very COVID Thanksgiving this year. Getting together for a big meal in person with loved ones is what the Thanksgiving holiday is usually about. But given traveling and eating together are considered high-risk activities in a pandemic, public officials are encouraging people to play it safe with public service announcements like this one. Why don't we prepare Thanksgiving dinner virtually? And warnings like this one. This is not a normal Thanksgiving. Nationwide daily coronavirus hospitalizations are at record highs in the United States. Now, this is Al Jazeera. And so it's a pretty it's a pretty balanced report. And that's why I wanted to play that first. But now I want to play for you a selection from the last three days. And I would say this is about 30 percent of what I collected. And of course, it's only just sections of what I collected. This is, it's, it's probably hours worth of material where the U.S. media has trying to ram fear down your ear holes to make sure you don't travel. And. They really have pushed it hard. That urgent plea from the CDC to simply uh, stay home, not to travel this Thanksgiving. And authorities are now warning that those negative tests are not a pass to do what you'd like. They're urging caution with all these test results. To the latest on the coronavirus emergency, the virus explosion in the U.S. showing no signs of stopping with 183,000 new positive tests and hospital admissions on the rise. The CDC now warning Americans not to travel for Thanksgiving. We're going to begin first with the millions of Americans 
Americans ignoring warnings from the CDC not to travel tonight. A dangerous move that health experts are warning will send the deepening crisis into an even faster and deadlier tailspin. Tonight, one model used by the White House says Americans should expect the death toll to double by the 1st of March to nearly half a million people nationwide. And we have an outbreak we're in the midst of right now showing no signs of slowing down. Then it's inevitable that we're going to be in a, in a potentially dark place come Christmas. Please do not travel for the holiday. We're living in the unknown, so we don't know exactly what's going on, you know, so it's best to stay put, best to wear the mask, it's best to just listen. Thanksgiving travel is surging despite the new wave of coronavirus cases and pleas from the CDC for everybody to stay home. To Thanksgiving, an exodus taking place right now. Millions of people are traveling for the holiday despite alerts from health experts pleading with people to stay home and don't have those big gatherings. Dr. Anthony Fauci among them warning there could be severe consequences if there is a surge in travel and this could impact your Christmas. The U.S. airlines have renewed their pleas for additional government support to weather the economic downturn because of the pandemic. More than 30,000 airline employees who were furloughed just about eight weeks ago could lose their health insurance by the end of the year if no help comes. Margaret. Very tough situation. Thank you, Chris. You know, you're welcome, but this is really getting slammed down our ear holes to a ridiculous degree. I, I don't need it explained to me, and I don't buy the argument that most Americans do. I think when you watch democracy at, at a larger scale, you often find that there is a bit of a general consensus that develops, and sometimes that general consensus just deviates from your consensus, and so a lot of times we label the public as stupid. But there was a quote from uh, Alidus Huxley, I think it was, that I thought of during all of this, and that is democracy, among other things, is the ability to say no to the boss. But a man cannot say no to the boss unless he is sure of being able to eat when the boss's favor has been withdrawn. You know, sometimes a part of democracy is being able to say no to what everybody else is doing, even when it's not necessarily even for the good. And I, I don't argue that I don't, I don't know. You could argue if that's if that's how it should be or not. But the way they're ramming this down our throats, it, it, it comes in hollow because when you get insights into how the people in the elite levels of society actually function, you see that they're not following the very guidance that they have been advocating or really actually like in the case of Governor Newsom have been shaming you with. Governor Newsom has gone on the air and had his press conferences where he shames people. And yet, he still, still, even while, in while doing that, <clears throat> himself has been caught going out, not wearing a mask, eating in public. Even while he's telling people, don't go to see your family for Thanksgiving. Tonight, while Governor Newsom is telling all of us to have Thanksgiving dinner outside, he's facing some new fallout for that fancy birthday dinner party he went to at the French Laundry. KPI X5, Joe Vasquez on the new photos and the new questions they raise. Just like the optics with Nancy Pelosi when she was caught in a hair salon that was opened specially for her, where she could walk around without her mask on, it shows uh, an elite level of access. This is one of the most expensive places to eat in California. And that, my friend, is really saying something. I don't know if you've been to California before. So this just looks bad all over the place because he's sitting at a table with a group of other people, including health officials who have also been making these same recommendations. Nobody's wearing a mask and they're eating at one of the most elite establishments in California. As COVID-19 cases continue to spike, small businesses like this one continue to struggle, which is why the governor continues to catch grief for his recent dinner decision. So he's at this super elite establishment during these lockdown orders that he himself has put into place, while small businesses that sustain families and the middle class are being wiped off the face of the earth, but particularly particularly hit hard in California. You should look up the state of business affairs in California and the mass exodus that's happening there. Oh, the mass, it's real. You should look at the stats. I know everybody's imperfect, um, and I don't expect him to be, but at this time, he, he really needed to step up and be that example for us. Trisha Caho is a private chef in San Mateo. She says she was disappointed by the governor's participation in a recent birthday party at the French Laundry, a Napa Valley restaurant, one of the most expensive on the West Coast. 
disappointed, enraged. He's implemented rules that we would gladly follow, but I don't think he's setting the best example. I think it's highly hypocritical of him. Fox 11 in Los Angeles obtained these photos of the governor and his wife at a party in what the restaurant calls an outdoor section. It has walls on three sides and the fourth side is open. No it's open but enclosed. It's an entranceway. This is this is about as outdoor as you could consider your living room if you open a window. Nobody's faces were covered. Today we learned two top executives from the California Medical Association were also among the 12 guests. To be clear, the French Laundry does appear to have been following state guidance for restaurants in Napa County at the time. But the governor has been preaching something different in public. He's been asking Californians not to gather with people from more than three households at a time. Well, I want to apologize to you uh, because I need to preach and practice. I, <laughs> yeah. I just think it's very poor judgment. Harmeet Dillon is a Republican California committee woman, an attorney who says business owners have been emailing her today very upset about the governor's actions. Now, I know this is kind of a hard ask, but just try to put yourself in the position of everything you own, every, every, everything, your house, your car, your medical payments, Christmas, everything is either made possible or not made possible by the success of of your self-employed small business. Imagine that's you for that's like that that is the exact scenario I find myself in so I I can really relate to this. And imagine that these lockdowns are destroying your business. Especially when you have these lockdowns that start back up and then go away for a bit and then come back and so your business ebbs and flows and while the scaring on the media continues to ramp up people don't want to go out either. You I mean imagine all of these headwinds that are facing businesses. And then to see this guy out there doing this, it's outrageous. I've had Californians write to me desperate about the schools being closed, about their business, which was already on its knees, now having the boot of the state on its neck. Yet for Gavin Newsom, it's like Mardi Gras or something. Joe Vasquez, KPIX 5. <laughs> I love going with local news because you just get <laughs> you get some of the best clips. But see, the hypocrisy stinks even more than just that, because the big part of this is he's sitting there at that table with these people that, you know, are from different bubbles and he's not wearing a mask when his office actually told the regulars, you know, the stupid public that does the things they're told. They actually recommended that you wear a mask while eating. Get that one. Take a bite, pull the mask down, put the food in your mouth, put the mask back up. That's the actual recommendation from his office. You can't. You can't just lift the mask up and down. People across San Diego reacting to this tweet sent out by the office of Governor Gavin Newsom reminding people not only to wear a mask, but to wear it while eating. I feel that that if they think it's necessary, they got to do what they got to do. Personally, I don't like the idea of putting between each bite you're saying to put I think that I think that's a little unnecessary. The tweet sent out over the weekend called dining tip number one reads going out to eat with members of your household this weekend. Don't forget to keep your mask on in between bites. The graphic shows a diner with a mask on then off then on. <laughs> Could you imagine and then to see that guy. I, I, you know, and it's getting downplayed a lot. And a lot of people have excused the behavior and, you know, he's oh, I own it. But that's why their recommendations sound hollow. And when you look at the public, there's a lot of people traveling today, although I, at least while I'm recording, it's still to like 60 percent levels. It's like not 100 percent. It's, it's still a huge reduction. It's like 60 percent of normal travel load right now on the most popular travel day of the year. So it, it, some people are definitely taking the recommendations. I've decided to. Um, you know, this is a hard one for me because. We've had some family members that have really had a bad year, and um, I'd like to see them. Um, we've had some losses and all of it. And so, um, but both for their, to respect their concerns and our own, um, and <clears throat> guys, it doesn't take much to convince me to stay home and cook. <laughs> That's why Gana gave me a good excuse to get a smoker. <laughs> so I'm brining that turkey and I'm smoking that turkey and we're doing it. Uh, this year. And we've decided not to go out. We've decided not to travel. And uh, it's pretty much the same for my whole family. It's pretty much universal across uh, both sides, mine and my wife's side. So while I am, while I myself have followed my own version of a lockdown and continue to do so right now because I don't want to get anything in my chest. That's the last thing I need. 
I don't need it rammed down my throat like this by a bunch of hypocritical, hypocritical elite. I'm trying to think of a way to make that like a th- like I need a better term. But you know what I'm saying, like the, the elite that follow their own rules. But it's, it sounds so cheap when you call it that. I'm trying to think of something that that gives it more what it is to re- that really demonstrates to us that we are being told to behave, and then our leaders are doing whatever the hell they please. And this disparity should be more recognized because. Something needs to stop these doofuses from getting reelected over and over again. And you'd think if people saw this disparity more, they wouldn't get reelected. And uh, mark my words, unless something else happens, uh, I think uh, Gavin Newsom's there has his eyes on the White House. And I wouldn't be surprised if in a future in a future unfiltered, we're talking about uh, Democratic uh, nominee. Gavin Newsom, my governor here, tried to do it. These West Coast governors, they just they, they want to run for president. But don't worry, if you if you get the Rona on Turkey Day, the CDC has actually shortened the quarantine time required for people that are exposed to COVID-19. CNBC's Meg Terrell covers health and science for us, and she's on the top story at the bottom of the hour. Meg, why are they considering this change and is it safe? Yeah, Shab, experts we've spoken with today say yes, this is a change that would follow the data about when people are most likely to become infectious. And in fact, it's a change we've already seen happen in countries like France, Belgium, and Germany. Emory's Dr. Carlos Del Rio says it'll work if combined with other measures. You know, it makes sense. And we also need to realize that you could probably also incorporate testing into a way to uh, to get people out of quarantine. I mean, there's so many people now that are potentially being quarantined. We in healthcare, for example, if we quarantine everybody that has been exposed, we would be left without employees. So uh, we've been talking to CDC and others about how do we incorporate testing into a way out of quarantine. Now, he suggests that people who may have been exposed get tested immediately, quarantine and mask for seven days, and then get tested again. And if they test negative, continue to wear masks, but quarantine can end. Shep? Meg, so if you can eventually test out of quarantine, that could increase demand on testing. How, how long is it taking to get test results now? Well, so it's better than it was over the summer, but it's still not great. We actually just did a survey of 9,000 Americans with data and survey from Dynata and found that most people get results back within two to three days, better than back in July. Less than uh, 43%, I'd say get it in two to three days. But more than a quarter of people still have to wait four days or more for their results. That's too long to be useful. And then there's still nearly 15% that are waiting eight plus days. <sighs> I can't believe our testing game is still so weak at this point. And it's so clear how rapid testing that, you, you know, could even be done at home would really help with the quarantine. Like imagine just, oh gosh, imagine if we had it by now. We wouldn't be spoiling people's holidays. But, um, you know, I was trying to come up with a way to describe the elite that kind of runs society. It's, it's, is it like upper class? No, I don't, I don't think it's quite like that. But people who are in that upper class, they, they are kind of part of the establishment that keeps the elite in power. So that's a weird power dynamic. And I couldn't have found a better clip to tell you, to just really demonstrate to you what a different reality they live in. They just are not even among the people. This is really something you probably heard about this, but this is some audio I got to play for you. There was a betting pool going on with Tyson, the meat factory, Tyson managers on how many of their workers would get COVID while they were making them work. Um, And, you know, this isn't the first time something like this goes down a betting pool. This is Democracy Now! I'm Amy Goodman with Juan Gonzalez. As we turn right now to Iowa, it was a betting pool. That's right. As COVID-19 raged through factories and meatpacking plants in the spring, the mega corporation, Tyson, refused to close its largest pork slaughterhouse to protect its workers. While publicly claiming to be implementing all possible safety measures, the managers of the Waterloo plant in Iowa put money on how many workers would get the deadly virus. Soon after— At least six people at the plant had died, and more than 1,000 were infected. Those numbers. um, I mean, when you hear six people die, you go, oh, my God, because you picture like a building, right, with maybe 60 workers in there, and you think six people. 
oh my God, though, when you look at the numbers of people that are cutting and chopping up meat, it almost is enough to make you want to be a vegan. Almost. Or just buy local. On how many workers would get the deadly virus. Soon after, at least six people at the plant had died and more than 1,000 were infected. These horrific allegations were made by the family of meatpacker Isidro Fernandez, who died of COVID-19 April 20th. In a lawsuit, the family claims that, quote, plant manager Tom Hart organized a cash buy-in, winner-take-all betting pool for supervisors and managers to wager how many plant employees would test positive for COVID-19, unquote. Last week, Tyson suspended the managers without pay and hired a law firm to do an independent investigation into the claims to be led by the former U.S. Attorney General Eric Holder. In a statement, Tyson Foods CEO Dean Banks said, quote, we are extremely upset about the accusations involving some of the leadership at our Waterloo plant. If these claims are confirmed, we'll take all measures necessary to root out and remove this disturbing behavior from our company. Oh, of course you will. How dare they not cut you in? <laughs> but worker advocates say the betting pool is just further evidence of mistreatment by Tyson at the Iowa meat plant and its other factories. Tyson produces 20 percent of America's beef, chicken and pork. The president of United Food and Commercial Workers International Union, which represents workers at the plant, said, quote, this shocking report of supervisors allegedly taking bets on how many workers would get infected, pressuring sick workers to stay on the job and failing to enforce basic safety standards should outrage every American. Yeah, it's 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 horrible when you think about what goes into uh, the stuff that shows up in the in your local grocery store there. Oof. Um, I just, uh, I really have no words for that. It just, I kind of just demonstrates though, that, that disparity gap that I was talking about. We got to move on though. We got, like I said, a lot to catch up on since uh, the last time we got together. So let's take a moment right here and thank the patrons of the show who make this here podcast possible. Very thankful for all of you as I'm reflecting on what I am thankful for this week. So thank you to those of you who feel like the show is worth contributing to. It's at patreon.com slash unfilter if that might be you. I'd love the support because the show is it's a project of passion for me but as a small business owner I also want to make sure that I'm not taking away opportunity from my business. So that's where the Patreon comes in. As, as Adam Curry put it, it's a bit of a value for value model. There's also other ways you can contribute. You can share the show with someone if you think they might enjoy a podcast like this. You can always rate and review it nicely because as you can imagine, a show like this also draws a lot of angry critics, and it's the people who maybe get triggered by me talking about something that is outrageous that then go review it. It's not generally the people that are enjoying the show that go and review it. So if you want to give it a review somewhere, like at the Apple Podcast Directory or somewhere else, that's always really appreciated, too. And um, I think that's it. I think that's all we have. Thanks to the patrons. On with the show. All right, so let's go back into time to just a little bit after I recorded the last episode. And Rudy Giuliani and his team of legal experts were holding a press conference that uh, was really light on the details. They had promised that this is where they were going to release the Kraken. And it was a lot more of what we had heard previously. And it didn't really line up with what they were actually arguing in court. And that's really where the disconnect came in. But then there was this other thing. You must have seen this if you were paying attention. I hope you weren't, to tell you the truth. Really, let me do it for you. Don't. It's better for your brain. It's better for your emotional state. It's better for the way you think. It's better for your focus. If you just don't, let me do it. Don't follow the news. That's what I'm here for. But look, uh, you probably saw this because it went around like crazy. Rudy Giuliani held a press conference where he was sweating and he had just recently dyed his hair, and the dye was dripping down the side of his face. Extremely embarrassing. Um, and the other part that sort of exacerbated how embarrassing it was is that you can actually hear on one of the Trump streams uh, that they're mocking Rudy, even though it's like a it's like their media crew. And it's just so clear. Like what I'd said early on is 
Rudy Giuliani does more harm. He's a he's a tainted brand and he undermines any legitimacy that Trump is trying to achieve in the general public. And at once all for Joe Biden. Now, listen to the audio. This is going to probably be a little subtle because they're in the booth. That's like flipping a coin 186,000 times and it lands on the <laughs> See fucking, lands on heads. fucking Rudy's hair dye dripping that down does his face. Not happen. There is no reasonable explanation for the upshoots. The straight lines up. I'm not even talking about a, an angle. <laughs> it I'm looks talking like it's crashed. I just saw it pop up, up on the stream. The vote tallies in the middle that, of the night. That was the moment they realized their audio might be getting out. <laughs> but even what used to be uh, former press allies at Fox, they react badly to each one of these press events. A colorful news conference from Rudy Giuliani, but it was light on facts. So much of what he said was simply not true or has already been thrown out in court. And, uh, you know, Giuliani, he opened by making this really bold and baseless claim that uh, a lot of this alleged nationwide voter fraud that he's referring to all came from one centralized place. He called it a nationwide conspiracy. Uh, and yet he failed to provide any hard evidence to back up that one specific claim, especially when you're dealing with uh, a claim that really cuts to the core of our democratic process. So what I've been able to kind of ascertain uh, by following Sidney Powell, one of the lawyers uh, that is involved, former lawyer of uh, Michael Flynn, is that she has math experts, quote unquote, they're advising her that some of the numbers we are seeing are mathematically impossible and they can prove it with math. That's uh, she is not that math. She's not that math expert. So she has these math experts advising her. And the way that their series of logic works is that the Dominion software, which is uh, from a Canadian company and has been used in other elections, allegedly to throw votes there. And they cite a few examples was now used in the U.S., and she's referred to it as a glitch. She's referred to it as a conspiracy. But something happened in the Dominion software that transmuxed votes over to Biden in rather obvious, mathematically impossible chunks, and that's her proof. So that's why when they go out there, they really have no proof because it's just their their argument is the math of it. Now, Tucker Carlson on Fox News has had to walk a tighter line than some of the other quote-unquote journalists or news actors, as I like to call them. He's tried to say, that well, maybe it's legitimate, maybe it's not, until it all came to kind of a halt when he called out Sidney Powell for not providing evidence that the election was taken from Trump. And this was the first moment where he really went hard after one of Trump's teams. By Members. former prosecutor Sidney Powell, who has also served as General Mike Flynn's lawyer. For more than a week, Powell has been all over conservative media with the following story. This election was stolen by a collection of international leftists who manipulated vote tabulating software in order to flip millions of votes from Donald Trump to Joe Biden. The other day on television, Powell said of Trump that when the fraud is finally uncovered, quote, I think we'll find he had at least 80 million votes. In other words, rigged software stole about 7 million votes in this election. Here's some of what Powell said today about the software. One of its most characteristic features it's, is its ability to flip votes. It can set and run an algorithm that probably ran all over the country to take a certain percentage of votes from President Trump and flip them to President Biden, which we might never have uncovered had the votes for President Trump not been so overwhelming in so many of these states that it broke the algorithm that had been plugged into the system. And that's what caused them to have to shut down in the states they shut down in. Now, um, I guess theoretically possible, right? But that is a major claim that would need some proof. Now, you look into Dominion. I'm not happy with what I see there, but it still isn't enough. You got to have proof. That was a few hours ago, but Sidney Powell has been saying similar things for days. On Sunday night, we texted her after watching one of her segments. What Powell was describing would amount to the single greatest crime in American history. Millions of votes stolen in a day. Democracy destroyed. The end of our centuries-old system of self-government. Not a small thing. Now, to be perfectly clear, we did not dismiss any of it. We don't dismiss anything anymore, particularly when it's related to technology. We've talked to too many Silicon Valley whistleblowers. We've seen too much. After four years, this may be the single most open-minded show on television. We literally do UFO segments. 
not because we're crazy or had even been interested in the subject, but because there is evidence that UFOs are real and everyone lies about it. There's evidence that a lot of things that responsible people used to dismiss out of hand as ridiculous are in fact real. And we don't care who mocks it. The louder the Yale Political Science Department and the staff of the Atlantic Magazine scream, conspiracy theory, the more interested we tend to be. I, I wonder why he didn't say use Edward Snowden as an example, but instead went with UFOs. It's almost like he tries, you know, you could see how like MSNBC could clip that and, le- and oh, look at Kooky Tucker. You know, why why go with the thing that somebody could use against you? Why not go with Snowden? Even though the UFO thing's fascinating, just seems like Snowden's such an obvious one. Like, there was a lot of people that speculated about spying and monitoring, and then Snowden revealed it was happening at a scale we never even knew possible. It's usually a sign you're over the target. A lot of people with impressive-sounding credentials in this country are frauds. They have no idea what they're doing. They're children posing as authorities, and when they're caught, they lie, and then they blame you for it. We see that every day. It's the central theme of this show and will continue to be. So that's a long way of saying we took Sidney Powell seriously. We had no intention of fighting with her. We've always respected her work. We simply wanted to see the details. How could you not want to see them? So we invited Sidney Powell on the show. We would have given her the whole hour. We would have given her the entire week, actually, and listened quietly the whole time at rapt attention. That's a big story. But she never sent us any evidence, despite a lot of requests, polite requests, not a page. When we kept pressing, she got angry and told us to stop contacting her. When we checked with others around the Trump campaign, people in positions of authority, they told us Powell has never given them any evidence either, nor did she provide any today at the press conference. Powell did say that electronic voting is dangerous, and she's right, we're with her there. But she never demonstrated that a single actual vote was moved illegitimately by software from one candidate to another, not one. And I think that's the critical the critical element. And so you have this sort of outing on Tucker's show, which gets, you know, tens of millions of, of views. It's pretty ridiculous. And you have this, this gaff-laden, embarrassing press conferences that Rudy's been having, and you know that the Don isn't going to be happy with any of this. So it seemed like it wasn't going to be too long until something had to give. And uh, the next day, Sidney Powell went on CNBC to defend herself. Didn't really do so good. And then shortly after that, it was announced that they had dropped her. In fact, you know, we don't really even work with her. She, she, uh, you know, I've heard of her, but I'm not really uh, familiar. Uh, don't really kind of uh, know her. Never seen her. Um, nope. President Donald Trump's legal team has parted ways with Sidney Powell, a former federal prosecutor who has aided his flailing effort to contest the results of the U.S. election. In a statement released on Sunday, Trump's other campaign lawyers, Rudy Giuliani and Jenna Ellis, said Sidney Powell is practicing law on her own. She is not a member of the Trump legal team. The announcement comes just a day after a judge dismissed the Trump campaign's bid to halt officials in Pennsylvania from certifying President-elect Joe Biden's victory in the state. Sidney Powell released some sort of weird tweet like, I understand the message or something like that to that effect. And uh, then she's gone. Haven't heard from her since then. She hasn't been on there talking about the election fraud. She seemed to be pretty passionate about it. And it's interesting because I think she was respected in some circles, obviously hated in other circles because of her defense of Flynn. She kind of flushed her reputation on this one. And then to be just dropped like it's hot by the Trump team on top of it is insult on top of injury. And you got to wonder if it just came down to Rudy or her and Rudy must have a, a tighter line to Trump based on their history. But he really doesn't do Trump any favors. And by this point in the week too, the party Trump, uh, the, the party Trump, the party of Trump was starting to become the party of let's move on. Really, some of his core supporters and others who are not necessarily in his core were kind of urging to wrap this thing up. Is it finally time for this to end? Yes. Chris Christie. And and here's the reason why. The president has had an opportunity to access the courts. And I said to you, you know, George, starting at 2.30 a.m. on Wednesday morning, if you've got the evidence of fraud presented... And what's happened here is, quite frankly, the conduct of the president's legal team has been a national embarrassment. Sidney Powell accusing Governor Brian Kemp of a crime 
on television, yet being unwilling to go on TV um, and defend and lay out the evidence that she supposedly has. Um, this is outrageous conduct by any lawyer. And notice, George, they won't do it inside the courtroom. They allege fraud outside the courtroom, but when they go inside the courtroom, they don't plead fraud and they don't argue fraud. The pressure began ramping up and almost just like I nailed it. I mean, I hate to take a little victory lap, but I mean, look at the look at my look at my record here. I said this thing would go on for about three to four weeks, that the the hysteria would ramp up, that the support would begin to fade and then the transition would begin. And here we are almost almost to the day and the GSA has designated that Joe Biden is the apparent winner and that kicks off a series of events that enable the official actual legal transition. President-elect Joe Biden has been, in fact, given the green light to formally begin his transition to the White House after a key official designated him the apparent winner of the election, the apparent winner. General Services Administrator. I guess that's the phrasing. Yeah, that is the phrasing. <laughs> They're having a hard time with this entire thing. I don't know if you noticed, but listen to the start of the clip when he said when he says Joe Biden's name, his co-host there, she gasps. Oh, right. Right. Joe. It's Joe. President-elect Joe Biden has been, in fact. <sighs> you hear it there? President-elect Joe Biden has been, in fact, given the green light to formally begin his transition to the White House after a key official designated him the apparent winner of the election. The apparent winner. General Services Administrator. I guess that's the phrasing. Yeah, that is the phrasing. Uh, What's actually happening there is both of them have never read what they're about to say because they are news robot actors and they are reacting to what they just said out loud after the fact. It's dawning on him after the fact what he's just said. And then because just the implication, even the implication of a tiny bit of illegitimacy in the election is outrageous. It's outrageous. So, of course, they have to get upset and then they have to address it and they have to move on, recompose and keep going. Because after all, they are professionals. He official designated him the apparent winner of the election, the apparent winner. General Services Administrator. I guess that's the phrasing. Yeah, that is the phrasing. Uh, although in the letter uh, that General Services Administrator Emily Murphy sent to the Biden team, she called him Mr. Biden as opposed to President-elect Biden. Uh, oh, my gosh. Oh, my gosh. But what's what's happened now is event, things are now in motion. The uh, The actual process has begun just about three weeks after the election. Uh, I think the Bush-Gore election took what five weeks or longer so this is just about what exactly we expected and um everybody then was ready for trump's big concession speech the white house sends out the memo to the pool says get ready trump's gonna hold a press event which lasted about 61 seconds in most of which he talked about the gains in the stock market and then wrapped it up with thanking some of the White House staff, and then walking right out on the press. And I just want to congratulate all the people within the administration that work so hard. And most importantly, I want to congratulate the people of our country because there are no people like you. Thank you very much, everybody. Thank you. Why not concede for the good of the country, sir? Why not? And I remind you, it's it's not required that he concede. It is proper and the norm. But this is all part of Trump's long-term strategy. And it's always all been about Trump. But I want to play that end audio for you again. Just this, this is a version of the clip because, you know, different streams play different parts. That's why I collect multiple streams. This is a different part of the audio that lasts a little bit longer where you can hear one of the reporters marking, well... That was weird as shit. Thank you very much, everybody. Thank you. And they're all just looking around at each other, shrugging, like, literally shrugging. I don't you know, it's funny that it's so the presidency really is all about Trump. The press thinks it's all about them. <laughs> and, you know, they went totally hysterical. Here we are now. Here we are. The transition's begun. Biden's going to start getting the security briefs. He's already communicating with Trump's chief of staff. 
The process has begun with two months left. And not to mention Biden's putting in a bunch of institutionalists who've done a lot of this work before. But the media went totally hysterical during this time. I mean, I could fill an hour of clips of them freaking out. And probably the one I played for the intro is my top contender. So I'll play the full version of that for you. Let's take a step back here and see what we're talking about. We are witnessing the mad king in the final days of his reign, willing to scorch the earth of his country and bring down the whole system to undermine our whole democracy, strip it of its legitimacy, and poison the confidence of our people and our institutions and the Constitution for Donald Trump's own petulant, selfish, rabid ends. Who's the petulant one? We have a president of the United States for the first time in our history, sabotaging his country. That's where we are. And will these Republicans continue to allow it for another day? Because every day it appears more and more that our system cannot handle, was not designed, neither our constitution or our institutions, to handle an aberrant mad king. This is absolute hysteria. This is this is total, unthrottled hysteria that comes from the left over an issue that is essentially non-existent. I go back to my coverage of Obamacare and what was going to eventually happen in the Supreme Court is exactly what we all think is going to happen. The severance doctrine will come in. They'll remove the individual mandate. Obamacare will not blow up. It could be resolved very simply in the House of Government before it even gets to the court, invalidating the court case. But instead of doing that, they scream bloody murder. Now, we have just witnessed a... Think about this, too, right? This is how basic bitch this is. I am a I am a podcaster in just north of Seattle, just sitting here in my studio, and I can tell you, yeah, this Trump transition, he's going to play it real tough for a bit because he needs to do it for his next plan. He's going to probably transition in three to four weeks. He doesn't have to concede legally, so he probably won't, so that way he can claim he never conceded. That way he can go on saying it was stolen from him forever. He can continue to fight it legally. He can pursue all of those avenues. So that way when he goes public with whatever his next strategy is, he has the most leverage possible. That's been so blatantly obvious that some podcaster could point it out. And yet here is a gentleman from the left that is completely, completely losing his shit saying that Trump is a petulant king destroying our democracy and eviscerating our constitution. When he is simply following a legal process, albeit embarrassing one, he is following a legal process that is available to him that others have followed in the past that is built into the system. And it may be wrapping up even earlier than some expected, right? Because he could have put, he could have probably pushed this into two weeks into December before things really had to hit the fan. So when you see this kind of hysteria over and over again, you lose credit. You, these people lose credibility. And this is why we have one of the reasons. This is not the main reason, but one of the many reasons we have such a bankruptcy of trust in our institutions and in the authorities that are telling us to wear a mask or don't go to Thanksgiving. Because we can see them be absolute hysterical lunatics. And just like that, it's all done. We, you know, two months still to go. We're sitting here. We're looking pretty now. Nearly three weeks after the election, President Trump giving a reluctant endorsement to the agency in charge of greenlighting the formal transition process. The General Services Administration designated President-elect Joe Biden as the apparent winner, officially clearing the way for Biden's team to receive federal money and resources, and authorizing the Trump administration to begin coordinating with its successors. Do you understand how this works? The GSA, when the, G, when the GSA makes this call... That's when federal funding kicks in, and that's when there is legal protections for the White House to share confidential information with the incoming administration. All this talk about obstruction, all this talk about blocking and causing issues with the vaccine and causing national security threats was total manufactured bullshit. Because this is a process that legally has to happen. The media doesn't bypass this just by calling it. This is baked in to the democracy that we will. Well, you know what I mean. <laughs> it's baked into the process. Money and resources and authorizing the Trump administration to begin coordinating with its successors. But despite mounting pressure from a growing number of Republicans, still no concession from the president tweeting Monday night. Our case strongly continues and I believe we will prevail. 
It comes after GSA Administrator Emily Murphy, in a letter to Mr. Biden obtained by NBC News, writes she was never directly or indirectly pressured by any executive branch official, defending the delay, saying she did not want to get ahead of the constitutional process. And while Murphy says she acted independently, the president insisted, in the best interest of our country, he is recommending she take action. It follows a series of dramatic setbacks for President Trump, the battleground state Michigan certifying its vote for Biden on Monday, and the president's legal challenges repeatedly getting rejected by the courts. This morning, multiple sources telling the New York Times that top aides, including White House Chief of Staff Mark Meadows, told the president that the transition needed to begin. The Washington Post reporting, President Trump called political advisors Monday to say he had doubts about the GSA initiating the transition. Here's what can happen. I, I got to, you know, just speculate here. So who knows? But it seems really obvious. Mr. Mr. Trump, what, what you need to do now is you need to get ahead of this thing, because the longer you push this, the more the Biden campaign builds steam, the more it's going to damage your long term reputation. People remember what you did at the end of your term in office. And so when Trump says, I recommended the GSA go ahead, he could point to that later on now. When the Biden group is saying, oh, Trump was delaying transition, it caused problems. Now, now he can say, look, I, I, even though the election was stolen from me, and even though I had strong legal fights, I, for the good of the country, recommended that they go ahead. It's a clever strategy that's, well, actually just sort of obvious. And I don't know, clever seems like it's maybe giving it too much credit. It's, it's, pretty much the only kind of avenue he has to walk away with any kind of a win in the view of his followers. The question is, are their claims of voter fraud legitimate? If they are, well, then for people to have faith in the process, the investigations at least need to proceed and go to their completion. And if there is no fraud, then there's no risk of letting those investigations go to their completion. So it seems like a win-win to let all the investigations play out. Because you have the followers of Trump that maybe can get some restored faith in the process if they see a valid legal process play out. You have the people saying there was no fraud now have this evidence to point to that says clearly there was no fraud, which can be used in the future when these are political talking points. So there's really no no reason not to let these legal cases play out. But yet there's still quite a bit of pushback. So we'll see where that goes. I also know where the new, there's going to be a new goalpost. They've always done it. They've always moved the goalpost. As soon as, 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 soon as it's one thing that's it's accomplished, then they move it immediately. So now the transition's been authorized. But watch them start to talk more and more about how Trump hasn't spoken to Biden. And they could even have clips of, of Obama talking to Trump in the White House. And they could do like a montage of different former presidents welcoming the next president and, you know, smiles on their faces. Um, yeah, I could see it. I could see the next goalpost is, well, Trump, you know, needs to have a one-on-one -on -one because there's certain things that presidents need to hear from each other. Like you could see that they're going to do this. And NBC kind of already touches on it on one of the first one-on-one -on -one interviews post-election with Biden, who's only taken a handful of questions every couple of press conferences. He's, it's interesting when Biden goes out there to take questions, he asks his help, how many questions am I taking? Okay, yeah, five. All right, we'll do five. We're going to do five questions. And then there's five press that are already picked out because of social distancing requirements. And then he just calls on the five, five pre-selected press people versus a Trump press conference that was messy and sometimes went on for two hours and meandered all over the place. Uh, but he, he really had total governance over the situation. He decided when it began, when it stopped, how long it went, and who got called on. It was all, it's all Trump's call where it's completely flipped. Uh, it's a much more managed situation with Joe Biden. And so we haven't seen him do a lot of long sit-down interviews. Now, the only problem with these NBC, ABC, CBS, CNN-style interviews is they're really heavily edited. So you don't get a good sense of the actual conversation, but I still think some of the points he touches on here are worth us expanding on. The team meets this moment, this team behind me. You announced some key members of your cabinet today, a very experienced group, a very diverse group. A very experienced group is newspeak for lifelong politicians and government workers. That's that's what newspeak is for. Key members of your cabinet. You don't have to, you don't want to say it, right? You don't want to come out and say it. Hey, these uh, people um, 
kind of uh, mediocre lifelong politicians who um, seem to be mostly like deficit hawks and war hawks and centrists and corporatists. He doesn't want to say that. Today, a very experienced group, a very diverse group. Clearly, you're trying to send a message. Can you articulate what that message is? America's back. We're at the head of the table once again. I've spoken with over 20 world leaders. And uh, they all are literally um, really pleased and somewhat excited. America is going to reassert its role in the world and uh, be a coalition builder. So that is globalist speak right there. America is now part of the global society again. It's no longer about America first. It's not about that anymore. It's about everyone together. Different viewpoints of how to govern, and it's clear Biden is more of a globalist style of governor, and that's his message. When he says America's back, he means we're back as part of the big kumbaya team, world government. This lineup, those you've selected so far, a lot of familiar faces among them. Another pass at saying people have been around a long time, haven't accomplished much. You say to those who are wondering if you're trying to create a third Obama term. No, 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 no. This is not a third Obama term. No, of course not. No, it's a corporatist stagnation that we've just got since the Clinton administration. And it's just rinse and repeat every time the Democrats get in office. Because there's, we, we face a totally different world. Well, that, that doesn't make any sense. Than we faced in the Obama-Biden administration. That, that, is, that is literally a non-answer. The president, this President Trump has changed the landscape. It's become uh, America first, which meant America alone. Can you believe that a politician can use a phrase like America first as a bad thing? It always seems like it always seemed like, why is that bad? Why should a nation want to put themselves first? What you have is legitimately every nation putting themselves first. And then they try to come together in some common terms like that is totally acceptable. But to try to to try to twist it and make it a, a bad thing to want to put America first when you're the president of America soon just doesn't really it doesn't register with me. The landscape, it's become uh, America first, which meant America alone. We find ourselves in a position where our alliances are being frayed. It's a totally de- that's why I found people who uh, who join the administration uh, and keep points that represent. Uh, the spectrum of the American people as well as the spectrum of the Democratic Party. Yeah, like John Kerry. Like John Kerry. Um, and Janet Yellen, she's going to be in there. Can't, unfortunately, unfortunately, Elizabeth Warren, you're out of a job. Sorry, can't can't. Have get in you there. considered for the sake of national unity uh, selecting or nominating a Republican, someone who voted for President Trump? Yes, and we still have a lot more appointments to make. I want this country to be united. The purpose of our administration is once again united. We can't keep this virulent political dialogue going. It has to end. Did we expect an announcement? No. (laughs) Not ever or not soon? No, not soon. Okay. What about um, former rivals from your own party, Bernie Sanders, Elizabeth Warren? Have you talked to them about cabinet positions? You know, a lot of the people who were on the progressive side who compromised for Biden because Warren and Bernie didn't get on the ticket, they were hoping that maybe they would have a role in the government of Biden and that that might signal that some of their progressive concerns are going to be met. More than just lip service that says it will, but actual demonstrable, powerful um, politicians that could make some of the change that they advocate, like demonstrate it that way. But you see, he's got a really good out on this one. Well, what I've, I've, I've talked to the look, as I said, the, we already have significant representation among progressives in our administration, but <laughs> John Kerry, there's nothing really off the table. But one thing is really critical. Ta- yeah, here we go. Get ready for this. And I, again, I called it. I knew they would do this. Taking someone out of the Senate, taking someone out of the House. Um, at a particularly a person of consequence is a really difficult decision that have to be made. Yeah, look, we're there's a lot of edits in here. Look, we're so progressive. I mean, we're just so progressive that we would really get along and fit in super good with Bernie and Elizabeth Warren. Um, we would really love to have them part of our team, but 
you know, those uh, Senate seats, they're just so gosh darn valuable. For a person of consequence, is a really difficult decision that have to be made. I have a very ambitious, very progressive agenda, and it's going to take uh, really strong leaders in the House and Senate to get it done. The head of the GSA yesterday uh, unlocked the mechanisms for there to be a formal transition of power, recognizing uh, your status right now. Isn't it incredible? Uh, the very media that was going hyperbolic about the transition not taking place now acknowledges that this GSA process unlocks the transition and makes it possible. That would suggest it wasn't possible before this GSA action, but totally not addressing that. And I, I want you to try to remember the episode where Joe Biden said that he's going to have a, a very progressive administration. Those were words. Those words, I think we can probably revisit in a year or two and just check in and see how that's doing. Is that happening on the ground? Are there people talking right now who yes. weren't talking yesterday? Yes. Immediately, we've gotten outreach from uh, from the national security shop from up to just across the board. And uh, they're already working out. National security shop shop from uh, how about that? That's how they think about it. Yes. Yeah, oh, yeah. That's the, the product from the national security agencies. You know, the ones where they spy on everyone in the world. Yeah, that's the national security shop outreach from uh, from the national security shop from up to just across the board. And uh, they're already working out my ability to get presidential daily briefs. We're already working out meeting with the COVID team in the White House and how to not only distribute, but get a, from a vaccine being distributed to a, be a person able to get vaccinated. So I think we're going to not be so far behind the curve as we thought we might be in the past. And there's a lot of immediate discussion. And, uh, and, and I must say, the outreach has been sincere. There's not been begrudging so far. He actually expands upon that, but they cut it in the NBC interview uh, that was played at the time I captured this. But in a different uh, version, he expands upon that and says that, um, yeah, the, 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 so far that their chief of staffs are communicating and so far things are going smooth. Although I think they, they do include the they do include the new uh, goalposts in this version. Let me check. And I don't expect it to be. So, the, yes, it's already begun. I'll back it up. So you can- not been begrudging so far. And I don't expect it to be. So, the, yes, it's already begun. Did you receive the presidential daily brief today? Not today, but we are it will be uh, starting very shortly, um, maybe as early as tomorrow. Have you had any conversations with President Trump post-election ab- about you know, paving the way for this transition to happen? Any back channel communications? Uh, no, I, I believe that. Uh, his chief of staff and, uh, and and my chief of staff have spoken. But no, I have not heard anything from President Trump. You don't anticipate any harm from this delay in terms of your ability to do what you want starting day one? No, look, uh, it's a slow start, but it's starting. And there's two months left to go, so I'm feeling good about the ability to be able to get up to speed. And I fully expect, based on what we've heard so far, We'll get full cooperation from each of the agencies in question. The day you take. It's a slow start. It's a slow start. What bullshit is that? They jumped immediately. They jumped in immediately with the night of the election, having a half acceptance speech of the election before it was even called. Then they set up the office of the president elect and pretended like this was some official normal thing that happens all of the time and created multiple conference rooms and held multiple press events. He's already selected most of his cabinet. He has a lot of his longtime cronies already in positions of power. A slow start, my butthole. (laughs) Like, give me a break. But I I wanted to get the audio in there where they ask about, have you talked to Trump? And he says it shouldn't impact the transition, just so we have that on there. But let's talk about some of the other members that have joined uh, uh, Biden's team. I mentioned John Kerry. And then Fox News calls out a couple of others because guess what? A lot of his team is coming from the media. You thought that was something just Trump did? Nope. 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 As Joe Biden starts to staff his administration, the revolving door between media and politics is spinning once again. As a CNN global affairs analyst, Tony Blinken, who'd been deputy secretary of state under President Obama, often chastised Obama's successor. President Trump has abdicated uh, that responsibility. He's put us in full retreat. 
from our allies and partners. And today, Biden formally announced Blinken as his pick for Secretary of State. Thank you. CNN contributor Jen Psaki, who was Obama's State Department spokeswoman, has also left for the transition. MSNBC analyst Rick Stengel, a former Time magazine editor, is on his second go-round, having jumped from Obama's State Department to fierce Trump critic. He's the epicenter of disinformation around the world. And now Stengel has joined the Biden transition team. Barbara McQuaid, a U.S. attorney in the Obama years, has also left MSNBC for the Biden transition. Sometimes the connections are less visible. As with John Meacham, the former Newsweek editor and presidential biographer, was an NBC and MSNBC contributor who praised Biden's victory speech. This is a moment where the life of the nation is intersecting in a fascinating way with the personal life, not only of uh, President-elect Biden, but also the vice president-elect. But the networks dropped him from the payroll after the New York Times revealed Meacham had privately helped Biden with that and other speeches. At least two dozen journalists joined the Obama team, including Time's Jay Carney and ABC's Linda Douglas. That musical chairs tradition is widely viewed as routine, but Fox News drew criticism for those who move between the network and the Trump administration, including John Bolton, Heather Nauert, Bill Shine, and Sarah Huckabee Sanders. Larry Kudlow also joined the president from CNBC. Well, Kudlow and Bolton were idiots. When political players turn into pundits, they can bring an insider's perspective, but more of them seem to move between the media, where they can resemble a government in exile, and democratic administrations such as the one now taking shape. Yep. Yep. Yes. I, um, I like that clip. I thought they did a good job there. So, um... And um, I think that was actually sent to me by somebody in the Discord. So if you have a clip for me that you want to play in the show, please do uh, hit me up in the Discord. There's a clips channel on filter.show slash Discord. Now, let's, uh, let's talk about some fun stuff. I'm feeling grateful and thankful for, uh, for you guys out there. And I wanted to end on a, on a high note, if you will. And we'll start with Mexico, who is moving to legalize cannabis. Mexico's been grappling for years with how to regulate this, marijuana. It's been illegal for decades while a war against drugs has raged. Now a new law, approved by the Senate, but which still has to go through Congress, proposes legalizing production and consumption with quite a lot of restrictions. Adults would be able to buy up to 28 grams of pot and cultivate four plants for personal use. It could also be imported and exported with a license. This grower, now producing illegally, is cautiously optimistic. I decided to grow because I'm a consumer first and I think that right now the conditions in which marijuana is produced and distributed in our country is very violent and very corrupt. I was just thinking, you know, this change would just have such a massive improvement for, uh, for the violence down there. It would be a huge quality of life improvement for a lot of people. It really seems like that'd be big. And so then you have the next step after you legalize. Now you got this problem of all of these people here in the States is disproportionately black people who are in jails for a crime that is no longer illegal. It's a problem. Here in the U.S., Renita, legal marijuana is also becoming the norm. And the question now is whether it leads to any changes for people who are serving time for past marijuana crimes. In this week's edition of Bloomberg Equality on Bloomberg Television, I spoke with Sarah Gersten. She's managing director and legal counsel for The Last Prisoner Project. One thing that we have absolutely seen, particularly from more recent states that have legalized is a really broad expansion of expungement provisions or clean slate initiatives tied to cannabis legalization. It really seems like, especially in the cases where it's just a, a small amount that was found in their car or on their person or in their home, and they're in jail for that. Uh, I, I mean, we got to look at that. We got, and then we did that here in Washington, and other states have done that. And it, it's that's also going to heal families. Families are broken over something as silly as a weed in their pocket. Now, I have to end on a story that uh, I think some of you have probably seen this because it was sent in to me a few times, but it's so great. I wanted to get it captured here in the show. Somebody had a lot of fun out in the remote Utah wilderness. And this clip, well, this clip's a lot of fun. Southern Utah wilderness. It immediately caught the eye of state officers as they passed overhead. It was an object so mysterious it compelled them to land. But what on earth is it? 
News specialist Andrew Adams is live tonight. Andrew? Dave, at this point, it appears to be something of a mystery. I mean, these guys aren't exactly ancient astronaut theorists trying to figure it all out. They're just state workers trying to do a job, but they definitely found something that appears to be out of this world. Captain's Law, Stardate 11-18-2020. The crew of the Utah DPS helicopter traveled to southern Utah on a mission to count bighorned life forms with wildlife officers. And, uh, he's like, whoa, 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 turn around, turn around. And I was like, what? And he's like, there's this thing, there's this thing back there. We got to go look at it. The crew had spotted an object of unknown origin on the red surface. Okay, the intrepid explorers go down to investigate the uh, alien life form. In the middle of the barren desert <laughs> stood a mysterious metal monolith. I would say it's probably between 10 and 12 feet high. It's just wild. We we're kind of joking around that if one of us suddenly disappears, then uh, I guess the rest of us make a run for it. So Pilot Brett Hutchings <laughs> says it didn't look like it was dropped there. It was firmly planted into the ground. We're like thinking, okay, is this something like NASA stuck up there or something? You know, are they bouncing satellites off it or something? It yeah. seemed less scientific and more artistic. I'm assuming it is, you know, some new wave artist or something, you know, or somebody that just is a big uh, 2001 Space Odyssey fan. The similarity to the space movie was unmistakable, as was the bizarre effect it had on observers. It just was kind of unusual. I got to say, it's worth going to the show notes to get some pictures. It's it's really great. I got a couple of links in the show notes. That's uh, at unfilter.show slash 339. <laughs> and one of them, or maybe actually a couple of them, even have some video. So if you want, that's, that's in there too. I'm going to wrap it up right there. I uh, hope you have a happy, healthy, and safe holiday. And um, share the show with somebody this holiday season. Start talking to somebody and they're a little like-minded with you on these things. Maybe they'd like the podcast. Thanks so much for listening, everybody. I'm going to take it out with a special Joe Biden song because it seems appropriate this week once again. I learned black, white, all colors, all backgrounds. What I mean, come on, man. Men, women, gay, straight, everyone deserves a shot. You know, come on, man. You know the thing. You know what I mean? You know the thing. You know what I mean? Come on, man. What I have to do is I have to continue talking about the things that come on, man. I came down here because I remember the first bumper sticker I saw. I learned that uh, I got hairy legs that that that, 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 that turned blonde in the sun. And the kids used to come up and reach in the pool and rub my leg down so it was straight and then watch the hair come back up again. I learned about kids jumping on my lap. I love kids jumping on my lap. Oh, uh oh, I'm in trouble, trouble. What are we nuts? Dead, dead, dead. You know, come on, man. Give me a little break here. Dead life. Taking cocaine or not? What do you think? Huh? Come on, man. Black, white, all colors, all backgrounds, what I mean. Come on, man. Men, women, gay, straight, everyone deserves a shot, you know. Come on, man. You know the thing. You know what I mean. You know the thing. You know what I mean. Come on, man. You have a problem figuring out what you're for me or Trump, and you ain't black. Come on, man. Well, Corn Pop was a bad dude, and he ran a bunch of bad boys. I can hardly wait to meet with that guy who is the stable genius. Come on, man. I am uh, very willing to let the public judge my physical and mental fit. My physical as well as my mental fit fitness. <laughs> Come on, man. Poor kids are just as bright and just as talented as white kids. Wealthy kids. Come on, man. I mean, come on. Take a look at the record. I know a lot of weed smoke. Come on, man. Black, white, all colors, all backgrounds. What I mean. Come on, man. Men, women, gay, straight. Everyone deserves.